Welcome to the first actual real life episode of the Two Coffins to Speak podcast. I'm Kevin. I'm Desiree. And uh, we are super excited to actually do like a topic and not just be rambling about terrible, terrible 80s movies like Jason Voorhees. Um, so we decided that for our first like official episode, we're going to talk about a place near and dear to our hearts. Talking about home. We're talking about New England. Yeah. So uh, both of us are in Rhode Island. Um, Why are you telling people where we live? <laughs> That's not okay. <laughs> Uh, good luck. You'll only have to drive around for like an hour and a half to find anything here. I'm, um, I'm pretty sure the tip of Rhode Island to the other side of Rhode Island literally only takes 45 minutes. Yeah, for sure. So. Like you can, you can bisect the entire state on, on 95 North or 95 South for about that time. Yeah. Um, but we're only one of many that, that make up New England. Uh, and Interestingly, both of us, uh, our families aren't originally from here. Uh, if you listened to episode zero where we talked about ourselves for a bit, you probably caught on that uh, both of our families migrated. We are first generation immigrants uh, and damn proud. Um, and so our families are from the Azores, if you're English, Azores, if you're Portuguese. Um, but we both grew up in New England, solidly in New England. And the reason why we decided to kind of do this topic is we were talking about just like reminiscing on recent memories. And we talked about a road trip that we did to Pittsburgh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had the brilliant decision of driving from Rhode Island to Pittsburgh. Uh, and One, it was... because we're poor. <laughs> Two, because I also didn't consider putting tolls in the GPS. So it didn't look that bad. At first. Yeah. At the, first. The original GPS estimate was like, you'll be there in eight hours. And then we were like, ah, oh, nah, tolls, fuck that. And so we took the tolls off the GPS and it recalculated to like, you'll be there in 18 hours. No, it wasn't that bad, but it was, it did take 13 hours to get there and we did not even take a lot of breaks or mm -hmm. anything like that breaks were literally kept to a minimum we'd stop somewhere go to the bathroom grab a snack back yeah. in the car yeah i think it was literally like 24 hours of surviving on doritos and and macchiatos starbucks coffee and which yeah were just a bad Bougie. decision yeah spicy doritos <laughs> and a lot of caffeine so in the midst of that trip, um, when we had gotten past New York, um, we kind of had this moment of like, holy shit. Uh, when we had hit into some of the states that are just a bit more flat um, and a lot less wooded than what we were used to our entire lives. Uh, if any of you listening to this grew up in New England, then you know when you drive down the street, you drive down the highway you can't really see very far. No. You know, to your sides. You look out the window and there's fucking trees. There's trees everywhere. Even if you can see, I don't know, Kevin, what, an acre in front of you, half an acre in front of you, there's still just vast amount of trees everywhere. Mm -hmm. If you're going down the highway and you're looking forward in the distance, trees. Yeah. There's nowhere. Or ocean. 
or ocean <laughs> or creepy lake. Yeah. There really is nowhere that you can look and there's just like miles and miles of just flat grass. I mean, yeah. even in our what we consider our countryside, yeah. you may be driving by and see somebody's like little farm that they have with like mm -hmm a little bit of grass and everything, but you're never looking out, looking forward and seeing just acres and acres of grass. So yeah. Or like seeing a horizon fully because no. like there's woods, there's mountains, there's hills, there's, there's all these areas. And so when we had got into Pennsylvania and we're cutting across like children of the corn level, you know, fields, it was absolutely astounding to us. And so we thought, all right, for our first episode, we're really going to talk about New England, what makes kind of the characteristics of New England so central to so many stories of, of horror and fear and creepiness and all of those things. Mm -hmm. And I, I was shocked. I will say that that road trip opened my eyes because I grew up here. It's all I've really ever known. So going to Pennsylvania, I'll admit, Kevin drove most of the way. We were supposed <laughs> to do two-hour shifts, and I would usually make mine about a half hour. Um, so when I looked out the window and I just saw, like, acres of even different colored patches of grass and everything, I was taking pictures left mm -hmm. and right and just staring because my eyes had literally never seen that far out. Yeah. So it was definitely eye-opening. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for uh -huh. sure. <laughs> so, so that's the topic. So we're going to talk about New England. Um, we're going to go over a bit of kind of what makes New England so damn creepy. And then we decided on two films, and, and this is going to be a, a tad bit controversial, and we actually argued back and forth for this a bit. We decided on two films that we think like really encapsulate New England horror, like what what that unease is that you might get if you're thinking about what it is to be scared in New England, to be horrified in New England. Um, and and there was one movie that kept coming up, especially because we're in Rhode Island, that we actually decided against entirely. You kind of wanted to do it, but, but I think we went back and forth on it. Um, if you're from Rhode Island, then you probably already guess what movie we're talking about. The Conjuring. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So we decided against doing The Conjuring because New England isn't really the setting of The Conjuring. Like, yes, it takes place. The original story takes place in Rhode Island, but it's all in this house. And that house is entirely divorced from, like, the New England surroundings. It just kind of, like, you could plop that house in upstate New York. You can plop that house in like Montana and it's still the same story. It's just a haunted house story. Yeah. 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 And so we really tried to do like two movies that we think New England as a character shows up. And so what we decided on is The Witch. <laughs> <laughs> and Desiree just made a face at me. Uh and it. Yeah. Specifically the new it. Um, yeah. We both really enjoyed it, and it was good. Um, we could literally speak for hours about the movie It and everything, comparing it to the old one, how the new ones are. That could be a whole different episode, but we're just going to go over the first um, new movie that they did. Yeah, chapter one. Chapter one. 
Yeah, because I think in it chapter one, we'll get to this. Um, in it chapter one is where we really get that setting of of Dairy Maine. Yeah. Um, whereas chapter two is a bit more about okay, they're grown up and you know fight Pennywise and all that. So that's that's what's in store. Do you have anything you want to throw in there before we get started? No, no, not really. And we're going to talk about a little bit, um, you know, growing up around here and everything and just kind of things we went through when we were kids that was regular day to day stuff. And it was like activities for us to do in New England, our little ghost hunting and (laughs) stories that we would hear from like around the area. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I wanted to kind of start us off with a little bit of a cultural history of why New England might seem scary to people who live here and also to people who aren't from here who kind of think of New England in this creepy way. Um, if you aren't a horror fan, then when you think of New England, you might think of like watercolor sailboats no. and lighthouses. Newport. <laughs> Newport and Martha's Vineyard. Block Island. Yeah. <laughs> which we all don't do. <laughs> yeah. If you're from here, like going to Martha's Vineyard is is a hellscape for you. Like the idea of that degree of traffic and dealing with all of that is just not a thing that most people from New England do. It's a it's a day trip. It's not something that you're doing all the time. And it, some people can do it all the time, but mm-hmm. we will admit like Things like Martha's Vineyard, Block Island, yeah, they're kind of a once in a every now thing because they're more for people who are wealthier. Like you have to take a ferry there all the time. If you live on Block Island, you're definitely wealthy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just one of those things you do every now and then, but it's, it's not a constant thing that you're doing. Yeah. In Rhode Island, Newport is one of those things too, but Newport's a bit different because like yeah, you can do the day trip to the breakers and go see the mansions and all of that bougie nonsense. But Newport as a city also has a tremendous amount to offer and has like a thriving art scene. Yeah. Um, so New England is is not the watercolor sailboats that, that some people might perceive. Uh, but the kind of cultural history of the fear in New England, I at least am going to present as... Uh, coming from three things or the intersection of three things. And that's one thing we already talked about, the woods and just how prominent that is. And then in the woods, there is the intersection of the wolf and everybody's favorite, the devil. Um, So the woods, the wolf and the devil play a big part in, in like the kind of haunted or, or horror history of New England. Uh, And so I am going to cite a bunch of sources in the description of this episode. And also you can check out our website, which is going to have all these sources cited as well. Um, But at first, I'm really going to work off of the work of a folklorist named David Hunt, um, who did some research called The Face of the Wolf is Blessed or Is It? Um, And so we're going to travel to England. Uh, As our people say, Inglaterra. Uh, we, we have a tendency to make it so where we're from uh, in the Azores, our Portuguese is very gruff. It's, it's very rough. guttural. It's not pretty. Yeah. Um, and so whenever we speak Portuguese into the mic, I feel bad because it all just pops. Um, so England, England in like the 12 and 1300s begins the enclosure movement. 
And any history nerd out there is going to know um, a bit about the history of the commons and enclosure and what that means for the peasantry in medieval Europe. And so enclosure is kind of like this process of literally fencing off land. So before that, a lot of folks, um, you farmed communally, right? There was something called the commons in pretty much any village, any town, and that's where people would graze their livestock, you would grow certain necessary crops in the commons, uh, and it was a lot more open. And when something is open like that, that means that everyone is taking care of it. And that also means that everyone is protecting it. Um, if you've done any kind of like background research into the fear of the wolf in Europe, then you know that Really, in that medieval period, the wolf population in Europe is super high. Um, and wolves as predators are incredibly like efficient and effective predators. And so before the enclosure movement, when things were mostly grown in these commons, everyone is protecting the commons. Everyone is protecting livestock. And you could have people taking shifts. You could keep a better eye out for predators like wolves. With the enclosure movement in the 12 and 1300s up into the 1700s and you start to fence off these areas of land and you privatize it, not only are you privatizing like the profits, but you're also privatizing care and you're privatizing protection of that piece of land. Rude. Yeah. And so it goes from like, okay, Monday I'll watch out for wolves and predators and, and thieves and Tuesday you'll watch out for them. To suddenly, once your farm is enclosed or once your area of land is enclosed, that responsibility is solely on you. And with the, with the rise of the enclosure movement is also when we see a parallel rise in uh, more and more extreme folklore about wolves. So, for example, what's the folklore that comes to like everyone's mind about wolves? Red Riding Hood is what it's honestly what pops in my mind first. Yeah. Red Riding Hood or werewolves or anything yeah. like that. So those things existed before the enclosure movement. But really with the enclosure movement, we start seeing things like, for example, the werewolf myth. Right. Which was really more of like a like personal curse being seen as a kind of public curse. If you have a werewolf, that means everyone's in danger. Whereas before that. The werewolf is like, oh, it really sucks about, like, Johnny's son, who's a werewolf. That's, you know, super unfortunate. Oh, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> Poor old Johnny. Johnny boy. Um, so the enclosure movement just kind of, like, amplifies people's fear of the wolf. Because also, too, once you start sectioning people off and people are on their own, People start talking, rumors start flying because mm -hmm. nothing is being brought to light and discussed with everybody exactly. at the same time. Yeah. Right. So like you're privatizing fear as well. Fear is now something that happens in your home, in your farm. Privatize your garden and privatize your fear. That's right. <laughs> um, so add to that the good old European Christian tendency of connecting the wolf with the devil. Um, Why does it always come down to the devil? <laughs> the devil, Why? man. Everything. Oh, Satan. Gets Damn it, bad Satan. Rap. Actually, no, Satan and the devil, two different things. We'll get there one. <laughs> That'll be a different different conversation. Why, Why you always got to start shit? <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So there's there's like um, Christian um, Christian fables around the devil being a wolf and good Christians being the flock of Jesus. And the devil is always after the flock of Jesus as the wolf is always after the sheep. Um, and that that kind of imagery ends up going hand in hand and becoming a really deep rooted symbol. And so in Europe, the wolf is evil, right? The wolf as a symbol is seen as this evil, vicious, insatiable creature. The wolf has no, you can't satiate the appetite of a wolf. Um, and I wanted to set that up as a comparison point because New England is known, if for nothing else, as kind of the point of first contact and colonization in for what would become the United States of America. Um, in Virginia before this, but New England kind of being the first settler colonialism. And that's a term that we'll use pretty often when we're critiquing things, settler colonialism, right? When you're like, you're coming in and you're taking someone's land to live on it. So when the Puritans come over, they're carrying this belief with them. And it's got to be compared to the beliefs and ideologies of folks who were here, the indigenous inhabitants of New England. Um, and, and so I'd say like one of the things that kind of aggravates me about living in New England now is we have this like noblesse oblige mentality where we're like, oh, all the terrible oppression happens in the South. Uh, racism is a Southern problem and all these things. And it's like, nah, that's super prevalent here too. Oh yeah. Um, you know, our, our neighbor has like, God bless Trump carved into uh, a uh, like bench in front of his house. Um, racism and indigenous genocide is all part and parcel of, of new England history as well. Uh, it's not just something that existed in the South and Indigenous and genocide especially was something that that took place here and continues to take place here in terms of cultural erasure. So for indigenous communities, the wolf was not evil. The wolf kind of portrays this image of respect and and really takes on the characteristic of something or a symbol that you want to emulate. Um, so there is the Ojibwa uh, creation myth that actually sets the entire universe or or at least all of humanity's mission as avenging this one friendly wolf that tried to help the first humans that was killed by a bunch of trickster river spirits and so for indigenous cultures the wolf and the woods don't connotate evil they connotate sustenance and they connotate respect um, and so of the many different kind of cultural clashes that happen at this onset of settler colonialism in New England, the way that these two groups, right, English and European Puritans and the indigenous people of this area, the way that they looked at their surroundings from the get-go was kind of this, this clash of opposites, right? Because for Europeans, the woods... And the wolf, which prowled the woods, were all symbols of the devil. And for the indigenous, the woods is where you got your supplies. That's where your sustenance came from. And the wolf was like this incredible 
not so much predator in like a derogatory sense, but predator in like a holy crap, that's that is a symbol to be respected and to in many ways like try and emulate their characteristics. And there's a tremendous amount of documentation of uh, English Puritans essentially accusing indigenous people of being devil worshipers uh, because of just total, I, I mean, like misunderstanding and miscommunication of beliefs, I think is an understatement. I think it was like purposeful mischaracterization. Um, so I have a quote here of a Puritan minister. I'm sorry, Anglican bishop. My bad. Sorry, Christians. I guess you're not all the same or something. Um, an Anglican bishop, John Jewell, who's, who accuses the indigenous of on occasion sacrificing boys and girls to certain familiar devils. Um, and this was like not symbolically said. This was intended to be literally meant was that the indigenous were in some way worshiping the devils in the woods. Uh, all this is made even more worse when uh, in Germany, good old Malice Maleficarum, the hammer of the witch, gets published. And, you know, the topic of, of like witchcraft panics is something we'll cover in an entirely different episode. But that, of course, attaches witchcraft and witches to the woods as where witches meet the devil and sign his book and all of that. And we are going to talk about the witch as a movie, but like the Salem witchcraft trials, which I know is probably on a lot of people's minds, whole separate topic. We need a whole other episode to cover all of that. Mm -hmm. Because that that's very New England as well. A lot of people go and travel just to visit, to come to Salem and everything. So it's also a big part of New England, aside from boats and sailboats and beaches, little cute cottage houses, <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah. Lighthouses. Lighthouses. Your favorite movie. I can't stand them. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> so I think, I think there's a strong argument to be made, and I want to talk about this a little bit, of even now when we get afraid of the woods. Like we've driven down streets around here in New England where if you go down a street where there's no lights at night and it's in these woodland areas as most things are around here, it's fucking terrifying at times. Oh, it is. I've been stuck, like not fully stuck, but I've definitely late at night, leaving work late, going down some road I put something in the GPS and not paying attention and I've gotten gone down dirt roads mm -hmm. no street lights and it's just like for a second even if I turned my headlights off mm -hmm. it's just pure black you can't see in front yeah. of you and it's horrifying because your mind starts making up things of like what's in the woods yeah. what's gonna get me it's claustrophobic a little it's bit claustrophobic too. a little bit you even with your headlights on, you can't see past the trees or anything. It's just darkness. Yeah. But living here and everything, it, it also brings me a comfort because it's <laughs> like if I, during the day at least, I'm comforted if I see the woods. Mm -hmm. Like if it is like acres and acres of land in front of me, yes, it is beautiful, but I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. So I'd argue that part of that fear of the woods, like 
I'd argue that part of that is still rooted in a little bit of this mythology. Like, I do think that a lot of people still see the woods as this is the place of, of the wolf and the devil. This is the place where because you can't see too far ahead of you, it gets shrouded in that mystery and mystery becomes evil and evil becomes evil incarnate. I don't know. My mind twists things like I'm not even scared of like if I walked into I've never seen a, a wolf mm-hmm. at all, like besides like at the zoo, but like coyotes and fisher cats and things. Would it be unpleasant to walk into them? Yes, I wouldn't <laughs> be happy about it. But my mind tends to wander and I'm like, there's somebody in there with a freaking axe and they're going to chop me to pieces. <laughs> and that's what I'm scared of. Yeah. That's what I'm scared of. I'm not even scared of all the woodland creatures. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's everything else. It's people. I'm afraid of people mm-hmm. hiding and having their little secrets in the woods. Yeah. And it's like, what the hell is going to grab me? Yeah. Yeah. That idea of being like grabbed or snatched in yeah. the woods. There's so many movies like in the last podcast uh, when we talked about the descent at the end where she just kind of pops out of the woods mm-hmm. as somebody's driving down the road and slams against their car. Mm-hmm. That is horrifying. I would drive away mm-hmm. when it's sad because it's like you should help somebody <laughs> in distress. But I'm like, I'm not going to help you. I've seen plenty of movies. <laughs> Goodbye. I yeah. might run over your toes. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. There's also there's also the sound dampening and deadening aspect of the woods. Yeah. Right. Like if you're in the woods and you're not making a noise. Generally, besides like the little fuzzy woodland creatures and insects, you don't hear a damn thing. Yeah. Oh, I've been on like there's trails everywhere and we've taken our dogs and Mm -hmm. there's been moments where like it's dead quiet and you hear that one strong branch snap and like you get oh, a chill down terrifying. your spine and you're yeah. just like, I'm gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna die. You know what movie did a good job of that? I don't know if you watched it was um, The Ritual. I don't think the I ri- saw that one. The Ritual did, a, I, I think, did a really good job of kind of capturing a bit of that like that anxiety and sense of just impending doom mm-hmm. and claustrophobia of really dense woods. Mm. So the wolf, uh, the woods, the wolf and the devil is like one big aspect of what makes up New England. Um, and we're going to touch on that, I think, at least on my part, a lot when we talk about uh, Eggers the witch. But the other side of New England I wanted to talk about in terms of like the history or cultural history of fear and horror in New England is the ocean. Um, And the ocean for us just has such a visceral, like deeply emotional reaction. Um, So for New England, it's the Atlantic Ocean, right? Um, and I was thinking a lot when we were doing some research for this episode, I was like, oh, how much of this is similar when you think about the Pacific Northwest? And I think, yeah, there's the tie of the ocean, but I imagine that there's just this slight difference in the way that you look at it. Like the Atlantic Ocean, for me, I look at it and yeah, on one half of my mind, I'm thinking of like our family and our culture, right? Because the Azores are nine islands that are just smack dab and i mean small islands that are just smack dab in the middle of the ocean um and like the cultural history of of the people from the azores are all like sailors and whalers um 
and all of that. But there's also the idea of like how much history has happened in that ocean. How many things have sunk? How many things are hidden? How many people have died? You know, it's it's also it would be absolutely unacceptable for me to not also mention like the Atlantic Ocean as the venue for the Atlantic slave trade. And that being one of the greatest horrors in history, I almost feel like that history of horrible events crashes onto our shores all the time. Um, so the ocean as a symbol, holy hell, like there's so many different ways that you can go with it. Um, but I would say the Atlantic perspective for me is one that looks at it and says, okay, there is this connection between every culture and every community that shares a coastline on the Atlantic. And if nothing else, we're connected by that horror of that slave trade. We're connected by, you know, travel and transportation and sailing that really built up a lot of these areas. And New England especially. New England, as part of that Atlantic world perspective, um, and I mentioned this actually in the other podcast, in episode zero, where I was talking about one of my favorite books being Marcus Rikers and Peter Leinbaugh's um, The Many-Headed Hydra. New England is a place for outcasts when you're looking at the Atlantic Ocean. Um, good old Rhode Island had the nickname of being Rogue's Island, uh, which I love. and I think we should bring back uh, and make popularized again. That would be way cooler than Rhode Island. Yeah. Half, the, t- half the time, too, if nobody knows Rhode Island, they literally think we're an island. Yeah. And they w- confuse us. Warmer, cooler. You remember that one? <laughs> what? The governor's like advertising, new advertising oh, campaign. God. Yeah. Um, they either confuse us for that or they think we're part of like Long Island. Uh, we get that a lot, too. Yeah. But, you know, Rhode Island was known as Rogue's Island and Block Island off of the Rhode Island coast was a haven for pirates. And there's still supposedly a lot of pirate shipwrecks over there. Um, Salem was kind of like the stepchild of Boston for a long time. And if you couldn't make it in Boston or if you weren't accepted in Boston, you could go up to Salem. Um, Maine also has a lot of communities that kind of started off as, you know, outcasted, um, outcasted groups of people. The other thing that the ocean brings is waves of migration. Um, we wouldn't be here without the ocean. We wouldn't be here without migration. And I think the the entirety of New England, as much as we sometimes think of the history textbook version of like the Puritan, um, the Puritan experience, New England is really has been a place for a lot of waves of migration to land. Um, you know, and and now. You think about the demographics of some of our biggest cities and a lot of folks coming over from the Dominican Republic, coming over um, from Puerto Rico um, and a lot of those areas. They're coming all the way up north to New England. So I wanted to provide a little bit of that like cultural historical background. Um, What? Desiree lovingly refers to as the dense stuff. (laughs) Everything you discuss is the dense stuff. (laughs) Um, So I wanted to bring some of that dense stuff into the mix and hopefully see like where we can, uh, where we can kind of like parse out how that stuff fits into some of the other stories that we're going to talk about. 
And specifically, I wanted to share perhaps one of our favorite folklore stories of a haunting or the horrors of New England. Um, and that's the story of Mercy Brown. Yes. <laughs> so you, you, you went to Mercy Brown's grave. I did. Right? I, how old was I? Oh, my God. Um, I think I was like 16 years old. Me and a group of friends um, just hanging out one night. And it's like, hey, what do you want to do? I don't know. Let's go to Mercy Brown's grave. Let's see if we can try and find it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we did. We went out to it, uh, went out to where we thought it was, at least uh, based off of, you know, a quick little Google search <laughs> was in Bur it's Burrowville, right? No, it's not Burrowville. No, it's in Exeter. OK, so Exeter, Boonies. Mm -hmm. um, and it all it said was that it was behind like a white Baptist church. Mm -hmm. Um, so Which good luck narrowing that down in yeah, New England. They're everywhere. Um, <laughs> they're all the first, by the way. Yeah. So we went and parked outside, which I'm surprised we didn't get caught or anything like that. But it, it, it really is like kind of a quiet town area. I literally held on to a BB gun because I was like, this is my protection <laughs> from what? I don't know. <laughs> but that was the only thing that like kept me calm at the time because I, this was all before I really knew Kevin. So this was before I got into horror. This is before I appreciated it. So I was actually freaking horrified. Um, so we go behind this church. It's just a bunch of tall grass. There was like a little crematory back there. Everybody's like, you know, doing their hype up talking shit. Like, oh my God. Did you hear yeah. that? Da -da -da -da. We didn't find anything. I think all we found was where I think her grave might have been because it was marked by like a small rock. Oh no. Then that would not have been it. Okay, maybe it wasn't it, but we yeah. thought it was it. <laughs> Which we, is like doubly as We important. definitely thought it was it. And then like there was also, uh, I can barely remember too. This is going back like over, way over 10 years, like what, 15 years at mm. this point. Um, I think there was like some wind chimes or something. We're like, oh man, maybe that's it. <laughs> and the chimes started chiming and we're like, oh shit, she's here. <laughs> it was the wind, yeah. which is a natural occurrence. Yeah. But th it's something we did a lot when we were younger. It's like, let's Google yeah. haunted, this haunted, haunted weird shit place. in New England and mm -hmm. let's go find it. Mm -hmm. I think that same night there was supposedly this house that was owned by a cult and like, yes. if you go to it, there was always a woman in the window, yes. just standing in the window, staring out. Mm -hmm. So of course we're like, yes, let's go check this shit out. Mm -hmm. um, we go to it and it's funny. We're all like between probably the ages of 16 and 20 yeah. in a shitty little junker car. And we go down to this person's house, which is totally illegal because mm -hmm. it's somebody's house pull up to the front of it, and there is a freaking woman in the window. <laughs> I damn near shit myself. But the thing is, there was a curtain, and like you could see her silhouette. Uh -huh. So you couldn't see her. Uh -huh. So I'm sitting in the car. I'm like, guys, we got to go. Of course, whoever was driving was driving stick shift and like started shitting themselves. Uh -huh. We stalled uh -huh. out like three times trying oh to back God, out man. of this person's driveway. And then somebody had the idea to like go up to the window with like a flashlight. Mm -hmm. But this figure never moved. So yeah. 
now as an adult, I'm like, it's probably somebody who knows their house is supposedly this spot for kids to check yeah. out and they have like a mannequin in the window hell yeah i would do that but pulling up and like <laughs> just being reassured yes there is some sort of form in the window that's uh, constantly that's watching enough. i was like oh shit <laughs> <laughs> i'm done i'm going home uh -huh. i'm done ghost hunting <laughs> like that's enough for me yeah now i look back at myself and i'm like freaking pussy <laughs> like, <laughs> but that's the thing is like those like bullshit teenage ghost hunting is just so ubiquitous in new england oh it was our pastime yeah like. i don't know many people other than than like kids i grew up with whose parents were strictly religious yeah uh where again everything was like the devil the devil the devil mm -hmm. um which like seriously the devil's a good time chill out um but like there isn't someone i know who didn't try try something one of those things yeah. like my grandparents are buried at swan point cemetery mm -hmm. swan point cemetery was always like somewhat normal to me i didn't know the folklore behind it and then as i got older i was like oh shit hp yeah. lovecraft is buried here there's a bunch of like horror related things and then as i went through my teens there was a bunch of friends that i guess there was a mausoleum or mm -hmm. something that if you sat on it past a certain time you'd get like something would push you off yeah. it you would get scratches all over you but i never wanted to go to that at night because i was like yo that's where my grandparents are like, yeah. <laughs> give them peace <laughs> but yeah. yeah it's a weird relationship that we have in this area with spirits and the supernatural and hauntings and all of those things where it's both normal and it's still a little bit uh frowned on it's so like the big thing for me when i was a teenager that sticks in my head that i still am like oh uh, kind of creeped out about and and set on ease by um was visiting the grounds of lad school yeah um and so if you're not from rhode island or massachusetts you or connecticut you might not know about lad school but you know the story of lad school is a story of any place that has suffered from the like horrid abuse of the mentally ill. Um, and it was children. Yeah. Lad school was, um, lad school was an asylum that was essentially set up for mentally ill children. Um, children were left there by their parents. And again, we're talking about a period of time in which like mental illness isn't really solidified. And so like, my kid is a pain in the ass and therefore I'm going to, you know, slap some kind of label on them at the time of, of this or that mental illness and ship them away. And just the documented abuse in that place. It was bad. Um, I used to read like articles and stuff mm -hmm. while I was in school. Yeah. When I should have been doing work. Um, Experimentation just, on the children. Yeah, uh, yeah. Crematories in the basement. Like, um, didn't they find, like, an underground tunnel there that was just filled with, like, the skeletons of the children that passed away there? They didn't yeah, have a, a cemetery or anything. They just yeah. buried them. Yeah. And so when I was a teenager, one of the things that you would do, and I will say, at least thinking back on it now, I hope my memory serves me right, that, like, most of the people I went with and when I went, like, yes, it you was. You actually went? Yeah. 
I didn't have the balls yeah. to do it. No, we went. And it was in this spirit of like curiosity, but also respect. Like this isn't this isn't the like cheesy teenager character in a movie who like goes in, drinks beer and like kicks some shit around. This but was, some people did do that. Unfortunately, yeah. Some yeah. people did do that because a lot of people loved taking pictures of that place because it had the old furniture. Mm-hmm. It had a hallway of like the kids' pictures mm-hmm. and, you know, colorings and all these yeah. things. And you would see a bunch of graffiti. You yeah. would see a bunch of like vandalism, which was unfortunate. Yeah. Um, but I think that comes with any place like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so we had went and... I mean, like to this day, there wasn't any specific experience we had, but I'll be damned that there's not just places in this region where you just get this feeling of just like this almost oppressive weight. Yeah. Right. This like weight on your chest of terrible shit happened here and it's like scarred this area. And since then, it's been it's knocked down already. Mm-hmm. Um, even when it was locked my, up for a while. Yeah, it was locked up for a while. My first few years of college, I still had friends that were trying to go and visit it to, <clears throat> excuse me, to either like take pictures or something like that, and they would get arrested because mm-hmm. they started really they locking started really down on the down security on and everything yeah. over there. Yeah, um, and so places like that are are you know in abundance in New England. But Mercy Brown and the story of Mercy Brown and the New England vampire panic, um, I think, has a special place in our heart because, well, we'll talk about the story of Mercy Brown and and then maybe we'll see if see if other folks who listen to this have a similar connection to the story. If you've visited any one of these sites in a respectful way, again, we do not want to hear about, Hey, I totally got like shit face drunk and high at lad school. I don't like, I don't really care. Um, but if you have specific places where you've respectfully visited and had the same feeling of a connection, uh, let us know, let us know, shoot us, shoot us a message on social media. Um, again, the purpose of this podcast isn't just like to hear us talk, but to really kind of build a community around these things. So Mercy Lena Brown, uh, she was born in 1872. Um, That's not that long ago. Yeah. That's really not that long ago. Yeah. Damn. (laughs) Um, She was born in 1872. Her family mostly knew her as Lena, Um, even in a lot of the newspaper clippings that we use as our sources for this. Um, she's mostly referenced as Lena Brown. Um, and she lived, she was born and lived in Exeter, Exeter, Rhode Island. Which, mind you, is like 20 minutes from us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Exeter is, continues to be, and was, it's agricultural. Like, Exeter is on the borders of Acadia National I'm sorry, not National Park, but Acadia uh, Wildlife Management Center. Um, It's incredibly rural. And Exeter in the late 1800s was even more sparsely populated than it is now. And so Mercy's family, uh, her mother and father had seven kids. 
of which Mercy was amongst the younger ones. So she wasn't the youngest child, but she was amongst the younger ones. And what really changed the trajectory of Mercy's life was what happened in 1883. Um, so at this time, Mercy is 11 years old. And when she's 11 years old, Mercy's mother, Mary Elizabeth, she takes her last breath. She dies. And it's December 8th, 1883. And her death started about a year back. Um, Mary Elizabeth, Mercy's mom, she was the wife of a farmer. And she was a farming woman herself. She was considered, you know, like bulky, heavy set, very, very strong, um, constantly working, as you can imagine that kind of agrarian lifestyle requires. And it starts a year earlier. So January of 1883, um, she, she started having these night terrors. And she was pulled from her sleep by just being drenched in sweat. Her heart rapidly beating. Um, and these spells included just daily exhaustion from lack of sleep. She talks about having nightmares, but there's no documented um, like details of what was in the nightmares. That exhaustion eventually leads to Mary's mother eating less and less. And she goes from being this bulkier, heavy set farming wife. Strong. Strong. Um, to just being skin and bones, to being frail, kind of sunken cheeks, sunken eyed, her skin starting to go a little bit jaundice, and she's visibly withering. And as she's withering, she's getting this cough, and the cough is getting worse and worse to the point where clotted blood is coming up now as, as Mercy's mother is, is deteriorating before her eyes. Um, her final breath comes in 1883, and it was after a hard-fought battle with consumption, tuberculosis. She got the sumption. <laughs> the sumption. Um, so consumption in New England. Consumption had come to New England in around the 1730s. Uh, more than likely, consumption was brought to New England by sailors along the Atlantic. Um, in terms of like pandemics that we're dealing with now, one of the things that worsened the spread of consumption at this time was the Civil War. So, so many people traveling, goods and resources traveling, and the wounds opened up and all of that from the American Civil War spreads the consumption epidemic. And it's really, really taking its toll in New England. So in Exeter in particular, the population of Exeter goes from around 2,500 people um, across 58 square miles in 1820, okay? 2,500 people in 1820, to by 1892 only having 961 people. So the town of Exeter loses more than half of its population. And it's from a, co a combination of tuberculosis, which was called consumption at the time, and the Civil War. 
So a year and a half after Mercy buries her mother, her family is already digging another grave. Now it's her 20-year-old sister, Olive. Olive has that same course of a slow death due to consumption. However, Olive documents the detail of some of her nightmares. So Olive, Mercy's sister, says that she was having night terrors in which she was crushed, like literally crushed by heavy weights, and that that's part of what would stop her breathing at night. So Olive is Meanwhile, buried. it's just Mercy sitting on her like, in the middle <laughs> like, of the night. They had some fat farm cat. <laughs> um, so after burying Olive a year and a half after their mother, the Brown family finally gets some respite. And, and there's five years of kind of peace and rebuilding. Five years after burying Olive, Mercy is 17 years old. It's also worth noting that Mercy at 17 was unmarried. And she's almost a grandma at yeah. this point. 17 years old in in, you know, the late 1800s, an unmarried daughter of a farmer is it's going to kind of label her as an outsider. It's going to label her as a bit of the other in that community. So in 1889, the Brown family unfortunately gets its next victim of consumption. And it's her older brother, Edwin. Now, Edwin was one of the was the only son. He was one of the few young men left in Exeter. Uh, and in 1889, when he cries out at night, telling his father of the dreams he has of drowning and losing his final breath to water, he starts to already show some of those telltale signs of consumption. He's losing some of his muscle mass. He's unable to sleep. The cough, uh, that bloody cough is coming up. Uh, and George Brown, who is Mercy's father, Mercy and Edwin's father, starts to hear from some of the other folks in Exeter, some of the townspeople, that one of the things that has worked for other people has been to leave and travel to Colorado. And that the Colorado Springs atmosphere will in some way help him to avoid the effects of the consumption. So he does that. And Edwin goes and he lives in Colorado for three years. The fall of 1891, Mercy's now 18 years old. And she's observed all of this death and trauma in her family. Mercy at, eight, I'm sorry, at 19 is suddenly hit with what's called galloping consumption. And galloping consumption is a version of tuberculosis in which you have the disease for some time, but you're asymptomatic. And then suddenly it all hits you at once. And so this type keeps you free from most of the symptoms while you're also shedding it. So you're spreading the virus, you're spreading the disease. Uh, and for what it's worth for Mercy, that means that she is going to, at the onset of symptoms, know everything that she's about to face, but faces it in a matter of weeks rather than months. And so on January 17th, 1892, Mercy Lena Brown is laid to rest. Um, problem is it's January in New England cold as fuck yeah 
is cold and it's probably already had the first snowfall of the season. And so that frozen earth meant that Mercy couldn't be buried in the ground. She couldn't be buried in a coffin in the ground. Instead, Mercy's remains were placed in an above-ground crypt. And this is the type that's super typical of New England burial grounds. So if you're from here and you've traveled to a burial ground, you've probably seen they're like these earthen mounds with a big iron door. And so those were these above-ground crypts where a lot of people's remains were sometimes stored in some of the worst months of winter. Uh, if you ever have the time, and, and we'll, um, we'll link this in some of our sources, you can see the difference between Olive Brown's obituary and Mercy Brown's obituary. Olive, her sister, um, who died at 20 and was engaged, had like this nice long obituary, how she will be missed and she was a beauty of the family and she was about to be wedded. All right, I'm going to read for you Mercy Brown's obituary as it appeared in the Providence Journal. Miss Lena Brown of Exeter, who has been suffering from consumption, died Sunday morning. Is that <laughs> That's sad. That's it. That's, That's it. not right. And I think it goes back to her status as a bit of an other and an outcast in that she was, for the cultural standards of New England at the time, Damn. she was creeping up on spinster status. There was nobody available. <laughs> Go find one of those consumption men. Um, so at, in 1892, at the news of his sister's um, illness and then eventual death, good old Edwin, who had made what seemed like a remarkable recovery, came back to Exeter. My ass would have stayed in Colorado. <laughs> I'm like, no, <laughs> no. And upon his return, he's living with uh, his father-in-law at the time because he had married, married well. Um, in his return, it only takes a few weeks for all of the symptoms to return of consumption and for Edwin to already start to look emaciated. Should have stayed in Colorado. Now, here's what makes it even worse. Edwin goes from having these dreams of drowning to having these night terrors in which he is shouting out, quote, she was here. She wants me to come with her. She haunts me. And so, of course, Exeter having like a population of 15, <laughs> this story. Who? <laughs> yeah, this story of the returning son who seemingly was recovered suddenly declining and having these night terrors of she is haunting me. Listen, he could have been talking about his wife. That's a possibility. It tapped into a current that was already going around New England. So New England in the mid and late 1800s was already in the middle of a vampire panic. Um, and it comes back to immigration. At the time, more and more cultures from Central and Eastern Europe are migrating over to New England. And as they're migrating, they're bringing their folklore with them. They're bringing their monsters and myths um, and lore with them to this new territory. And one of those myths or monsters was the vampire. 
Um, and so in Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maine, New Hampshire, and now Rhode Island, people were going through this process of first panicking in the belief that there was a vampire somewhere in the community, and then deciding that the vampire must have been someone who recently passed, was recently deceased, exhuming and in some way mutilating the corpse. And as we'll see in a minute, when the case of Mercy Brown, good old-fashioned cannibalism. So the uh, local townspeople of Exeter get it rooted in their minds that there is a vampire in the Brown family, and that vampire is feeding off of Edwin Brown. Um, so the suspected bloodsuckers must be found, and the fact that Edwin is saying, she is haunting me, points to the idea that it must be one of the recently deceased female members of the Brown family. Either the mom, Mary Elizabeth, Olive, or Mercy Lena. And so George, the father of the family, is convinced by the townspeople to exhume all three corpses. Now, Mary and Olive were buried in the ground, but Mercy was still in the crypt. Uh, this is only a few months after Mercy's death. And so when they open up the crypt and they find her body, unsurprisingly, it hasn't deteriorated much. The worms hadn't gotten to her yet. No, because there's no worms to get to her, right? Yeah. She's in this above ground crypt. And it's also January. January, February, March. It's cold. Right. So we're talking about some of the coldest months of the New England winter. Her corpse had been essentially preserved. Now, they narrow it down to, okay, we're going to investigate Mercy's corpse a bit further. Uh, George Brown was accompanied by a doctor. Um, and that doctor was Harold Metcalf of Wickford. And so George asks Dr. Metcalf to open up Mercy's body. And so upon examining her organs, like after tearing open her chest, they find clotted blood in her heart and in her liver. None of that should be surprising today. No. All of the details of this case, if it happened today, any trained physician would go, yeah, sounds about right. But like, don't you think they would also consider the fact that she's freshly passed away, it's winter time, and she's not even put into the ground? You would hope. But, but no. Panic. You know, whenever whenever you have a community in panic, reason kind of goes out the window. And when reason goes out the window, people clutch onto kind of their most basic cultural beliefs. Some of the things that like really root them in, in what makes them afraid. And so the heart kind of being this organ that we all have this folklore around, like the heart being where our spirit and emotions are, having blood in it is important. But then the other thing is important is that there's blood in the liver. And the liver is an organ that really symbolizes rejuvenation, regeneration, right? Because your liver can regenerate. And the idea being that a vampire, as they are trying to regenerate from the dead, 
would first have blood that they drained in their heart and in their liver. So, of course, Mercy Brown is a vampire. And so the doctor and George Brown remove in kind of this public ritual way, they remove her heart and they remove her liver from her corpse. And they then burn them. They cremate them. And as they are burning them, so there's no documented evidence of this, but this was a pretty common uh, ritual that happened during the New England Vampire Panic was that the victims or quote unquote victims of the vampire would have to breathe in the smoke of the vampire's burning organs. Oh, fantastic. So just breathe in all that tuberculosis. (laughs) And so chances are, here is Edwin Brown, Mercy's brother. Sucking it up. Just sucking up all of the smoke of her incinerated organs. Also, too, supposedly they burnt them on a rock, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think... According to folklore, that rock is still behind the church. Yep. And when we went, somebody said they saw the rock and they could see the burn marks. Yep. It just looked like a rock <laughs> to me. But I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So they were burned in place. And again, in kind of like this public ritualistic way. And then to top it all off, the final step that was necessary for Edwin to rid himself of his sister, the vampire, he had to eat the ashes of her heart and her liver. No. And that would be the final step in ending the reign of Mercy Brown as the vampire of Exeter would be that her brother would have to consume the ashes of her organs. I wonder if they actually did embalm her. Like, do I don't know when like embalming no. started because I was going to say if she's got all of that stuff running through her and he's just going to eat that ashes or not, <laughs> he's going to go on a trip. Yeah. <laughs> now, so embalming would have been around at this time, right? In the 1890s, but more simplified, perhaps not simplified. You, you got to remember Exeter's rural as hell. Exeter is like farming community of 900 at the time. And so even technology like embalming like that, it wouldn't have happened, not for Mercy Brown. As anyone might guess, one month later, Edwin died. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Edwin. Um, Edwin died. And then shortly after, Annie Brown died. In August of 1895. I'm assuming that's another sister. Another sibling. Okay. And then Jenny Brown. Another sibling. In October of 1895. And then Myra in June of 1899. And the only surviving sibling was Haiti Brown, who was born after Mercy, was one of the youngest, who survived until she was 75 years old. She's a G. Yeah. So Mercy Brown ended up being one of the last that we know of, one of the very last. Did the uh, dad survive? New England vampires. Did he stay alive or did he pass away? No, he passed away. He Just died. like old age or? He died of consumption. Oh. He died of consumption. Um, did he eat some ashes too? <laughs> I'm sure he got a few sniffs. <laughs> So uh, local folklorist Michael Bell has documented at least 80 vampire exhumations throughout New England. So there's at least 80 corpses around New England that were exhumed, mutilated, 
perhaps cannibalized, similar to Mercy Brown's case, in the course of the few decades in the 1800s. Mercy happened to be one of the last ones that we know of. Um, and despite the fact that her brother still died afterwards and, and so many people in her family died, and despite the fact that in the midst of all of this, a doctor had isolated the cause of tuberculosis, her legacy remained one tainted as a vampire. You know, she would, after the mutilation, be buried in the ground, be given a coffin. Um, and you can visit Mercy Brown's tombstone, which is marked off as Mercy L. Brown. But does you she can, she has a tombstone? I thought she had an unmarked grave. So she does have a tombstone. One but of it's the not of, there, right? It is. It is. It's one of those urban legends that we as teenagers hear that, ooh, Mercy Brown doesn't have a marked grave. Because it makes it that much cooler, right? Like unmarked yeah. grave. But no, she has a marked gravestone. She has a marked gravestone. But is it behind that church? Yes. Yes. Yeah, where the uh, hell Chestnut, was I looking? The Chestnut Hill Cemetery. For anyone looking to visit Mercy Brown's grave. Hmm. So that's the story of, of Rhode Island's vampire. And I think so many of the elements of Mercy Brown's story make up so much of what has horrified New England throughout the centuries, right? The same panic that led the people of Exeter to believe that there was a vampire in the Brown family is the same panic that made people in Salem believe that there was witches, is the same panic that made you know, any countless amounts of events that happened in this region. So that's Mercy Brown. Poor thing. Yeah, I think like, so for me, I think about that story and so much of me sympathizes with Mercy. I would have haunted everyone. <laughs> like you, I was at peace. You freaking went into my tomb, cut me open burned my goods and then you ate my ashes you burned my giblets you burned my giblets i'm coming for you so that's like the real the real horrors the real history of horror in new england now we're going to talk about some movies we're going to talk about theatrical horror in new england which one do you want to start with first well we just watched it a few days ago you've seen it multiple times um but I just saw it a few days ago, which was The Witch, 2015. Yeah. So The Witch, directed by Robert Eggers, um, it actually advertises itself as a New England folktale, which I think is super appropriate. Um, if you haven't seen this movie, we're going to give you a quick summary um, the two oldest children are the daughter, Tomlinson, um, and Caleb. And Father William seems to be kicked out of the colony. Uh, it seems to be based on the Mass Bay colony, um, but I could be wrong there. He's kicked out of the colony, and they have to make a life out in the quote-unquote wilderness. And after setting up a small farm and home in a clearing just next to the woods, one of their little babies go missing. Um, but Thomason is the one to blame. Yeah, so Thomason is watching the baby when the mm -hmm. baby goes missing. She's literally playing like peekaboo with it. Yeah. And then on one of the like 
peekaboo moments, baby Sam is not there. And all she can really see is, you see like a little bit of a figure taking Sam into the woods. Mm -hmm. And then things happen to little baby Sam. Uh, And essentially the family's misfortune multiplies. Um, Their crops fail. Their goats are um, excreting blood instead of milk. Um, Caleb is lost in the woods. One of their other sons is lost in the woods for a time and he comes back seemingly bewitched. And as all of this happens, increasing levels of paranoia and mistrust gets targeted towards the eldest daughter, Tomlinson. Um, until the very end when literally the family is laid to waste and Tomlinson uh, tries to tell them that all of this is being done because of Black Philip, the family's goat, who she believes to be the devil, who she believes to be fraternizing with their uh, twin siblings. But after the family is dead, Black Philip comes to Tomlinson, offers for her to sign his book and live deliciously. Uh, Tomlinson goes out into the woods, joins a apparently a coven of witches to float away into um, material bliss. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's the witch. Um, so I'll let you go first. What like just generally what was your feeling on this movie? So one of the things that I noticed a lot of was it had a very heavy religious background. Um, The parents kept pushing pretty much. There was a few points just flat out. You're born a sinner. You are always a sinner. No matter what you do, you are a sinner. Um, The mom is really upset when, you know, baby Sam gets taken because her biggest concern is due to them leaving where they were. Sam was never baptized. Yeah. So according to her, whatever happens to Sam, because they're not going to see him anymore, whether he's passed on in the woods, something killed him because they keep stating that a wolf took him. (laughs) So mom thinks Sam is dead and mom thinks Sam is pretty much damned to eternal hell due to him not being baptized. Um, You have to be baptized to get into heaven. So according to them, according to them. Um, And a lot of things you see as well that the kids are doing, that the dad is doing, that, you know, he says to Caleb is you have to ask God for forgiveness every single day. You have to constantly pray. You have to constantly, you know, confess your sins to him and everything. And they, they heavily believe that kind of if they do well, you know, bad shouldn't be put upon them but regardless they're sinners so it's going to happen or that like if bad is put on them it's a test from god it's a test from god yeah yeah you know what's interesting though is thinking back on it and i actually hadn't written this in my notes you only see tomlinson i i hate pronouncing her name it feels weird i feel like i feel like i have to add an l in there um tomlinson yeah you only see her you only see tomlinson pray once and it's near the beginning. Near the beginning, she's doing like her like morning prayer ritual. And after that, 
she never again prays to God. She like begs, like just kind of like begs to her family, begs for her family to believe her. But she never besides that one time prays. No, she just kind of also takes part in like whatever daily prayers that they're doing yeah. at dinner and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I wrote down is that the real horror in the witch comes from Puritanism. Exactly like you said, like most of the terrible things, the ominous mood that you get, it comes from just how like bleak this religious view was. Um, but I would also add that there is another character and that is the character of the woods. Because the amount of times that the camera pans out into just a shot of the woods. Just like, like the wood line. Yeah, yeah, much. yeah. Yeah. yeah, almost this liminal space, right, where it's like where the family farm ends and the woods begin was its own character in the movie. Yeah. Um, and they make it very clear to to stay away from the woods. Mm -hmm. Stay away from the woods unless, you know, dad is with you or something like that, but don't go into, into the woods. Bad things yeah. live in the woods. Yeah, yeah. And so I had seen The Witch a while back. Um, but then, so I did the research for the beginning of this episode before we rewatched the witch to like take notes on it. And I was pleasantly surprised with the amount of times that they reference wolves in connection with the devil in this movie. Um, and so like near the very beginning, uh, after Sam gets snatched and, um, becomes like, oil of sam for the witch <laughs> so bad <laughs> uh after that happens and william the father is like talking with the mom about just kind of coming to the realization that this happened he says if not a wolf then hunger has taken him right and so they're constantly blaming a wolf for taking sam um and when catherine can't find her silver cup which was like such a just petty moment. So I don't know about you, but I had like, and this is probably terrible to say, I had zero sympathy with Catherine's character. Like I felt, yeah, absolutely. I felt for the idea of a mother losing a child, but everything Catherine said just irked me. And the fact that in the midst of all of this, like that silver cup, was so prominent in her mind and when she's accusing thomason of having taken the cup she says did a wolf vanish that too but but they even say in the movie you know prior to her losing sam she was a different person and you have to think she wasn't with sam when he was lost she couldn't protect him or anything she literally put all the protection and you know, watch into Thomason mm -hmm. and Thomason couldn't really explain much was just that a wolf took him. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, if, you know, I imagine if you're a mother figure, you would do goddamn anything to get your child back from that wolf, whether yeah. it's chasing him in the woods, beating him upon the head, whatever. I'm pretty sure her mother would have given her life for Sam. Um, so she always has this kind of anger towards Thomason and you can yeah. definitely see that. 
And, you know, as things keep happening and some things keep going unexplained, just like Sam wasn't explained very well to her, she's going to blame Thomason because Thomason keeps coming back and keeps being the root of shit happening. But is she, though? So, like, this is one of the great questions of, of this. And, and I love this movie. Um, it's definitely a slow burn. I think that if you are into blood, guts, gore, quick-paced horror, you might not have liked this movie. You might not even consider it horror if that's what you're into. But I, I loved this movie. Uh, and I think one of the lasting questions that a lot of people can argue back and forth on is, like, was Thomason a witch like she is in the end right that happens but was she responsible and i don't like i see so many ties to historically what has caused certain women to be accused of witchcraft wrongfully before so for example in terms of like who does the work in that family who keeps that family running that we see as the audience it's Thomason. You know? Well, I, th I think, too, partially that's why, like, of course she's upset that her brother's lost and everything, but as time goes on, she doesn't like the twins. You know, she messes Yo, with fuck them. fuck those twins. Fuck those twins. <laughs> she messes with them. You know, she says things for them to be scared. She wants them scared, and she wants them to stay away from her because it's just constant babysitting of them. Mm -hmm. If they do anything wrong, it's Thomason's fault. Um, you know, really the only sibling she shows compassion towards is Caleb. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, she's expected to clean. She's expected to do this. She's expected to babysit. Anything goes wrong, that blame is put on her. And it's very stressful because also in the movie, you hear her parents just so ready to rid of her. Yeah. Like, all right, we'll sell her off to somebody in the town and stuff. We're starving and everything. Might as well get rid of Thomason. Yeah. When at the end of the day, Thomason's the one who's helping them do everything. Yeah. She's the child caretaker. She takes care of the animals, you mm -hmm. know, she's tending to the crops and everything like that. So it's very, con I, I don't blame her. I'd be freaking pissed too. Yeah, I actually, I see Thomason the way I see Mercy Brown. Like she is a victim of circumstance and a victim of social norms that will set her up as the outsider. And it's always easier to blame the outsider. Yeah. You know, um, Along those lines, I want to talk about Caleb for a little bit. Caleb was a little ball of pureness. Was like, he, though? I don't He questions things. He definitely, in the woods, you know, he questions things with his dad and everything because he wanted to, like, really know, like, why? Why is things like this? Like, why? Yeah. But at the end of the day, he, I feel like he truly just wanted to please his parents yeah. and, like, please his family and support his family. When Thomason starts getting blamed for the silver cup, Caleb knows what's going on. Mm -hmm. Caleb knows his dad sold the silver cup. Mm -hmm. So he already wants to fix it. Like, he wants mm -hmm. to take it upon himself to fix it. Um, and honestly, when he was going, you know, when he was bewitched or whatever, mm -hmm. and, like, you saw him as a... I see it as whatever is going on in his mind yeah. is what he's going to push out. Yeah. So as he's dying, he's... Yo, that he's, was so... First of all, as an actor... Spot on, kid. Hell of a good job. But he's seeing God. You know, he's seeing himself going to God, sitting in God's lap. A little weirdly. A little weird, but 
he feels like, you know, he feels like he made it and everything, you know? Yeah. I just think he's a cute little freckled ball of pureness. Yeah, but so like... Well, so not entirely pure, because honestly, he kept staring at Thomason's titties. <laughs> and that's not right, man. That's your sister. So here's the thing, right? That is some incest. <laughs> There's been a lot said about... about um, kind of like the way that this movie treats gender and very much so like the end of the film almost is like this liberatory moment. I also see the character of Caleb as a bit of this condemnation of like male saviorism, right? Because what got Caleb into trouble was that he felt like I'm also a man in this family and as a man, I need to go out into the woods and I need to alone, even though like the the rifle was bigger than Caleb was alone. He was going to take his father's rifle and go make this right. Yeah. And I really feel like if Caleb hadn't had this kind of paradigm of I am man and man saves. Caleb would be all right. Yeah. And, and if Caleb was all right. Maybe nothing would have happened to Thomason. And and that that's a pivot point in the movie. You also have to consider the times that it is, though. Like Yeah, but so here's an argument. <laughs> Even a movie as tied to history, and I do think, like, as a history teacher and all of that, I think Eggers did a hell of an amazing job getting the portrayal across. You know, I think the fact that the scale of everything was so small was brilliant because the scale of those things in real life, the scale of like Puritan settlements was that small. But it's still a movie made in 2015. Like it's still going to have messages and meanings and, and all those things set in 2015. You know. Um, so Black Phillip. What do you think? What's your thoughts on Black Phillip as well, like a horror icon? I just think it's weird, too, that like the twins are sitting there being little shits and they sing about Black Phillip all the time <laughs> and like keep singing these little like rhymes and stuff. And their parents are like, hey, shut up, like move to the side, <laughs> not listening at all to yeah. the things that they're saying, yeah. not listening to them saying, oh, Black Phillip whispers to me and, da -da -da, and they're like stop <laughs> yeah i just think that's crazy because it's like if thomason was saying that if caleb was saying that mm -hmm. they would have paid more attention and mm -hmm. they just kind of brushed them aside yeah Ugh. i don't know i loved it i loved just black philip just bam right into william's side um and you know so so we have a we have a ram's head that hangs in my office and uh, I just I think that imagery of the he goat, the ram or anything like that is just so such powerful imagery. Yeah. Um, that scene of them being boarded up in the farm or in that little barn with the twins, Thomason and Black Philip. And Black Philip never goes against the children. Like I never saw him trying to hit Thomason, Caleb, the kids, but. Yeah. When he's by himself, what does he do? Shove his horn right into the dad. Yeah. So it's weird them. that he's calm around kids, these kids and everything who I consider to be like easy to d talk to. Mm -hmm. um, Maybe easy to deceive. Easy to deceive and everything like that. But 
he just killed the father mm-hmm. um throughout the movie i was like he's just a goat like these kids they make up stories and all these things but then you start to question like is he whispering things to them you know is mm-hmm. he doing something even in the end when thomason she wants that cl- everybody's dead everybody's passed away yeah. <laughs> like she killed her mother on top of her all this stuff yeah she even questions, you know, she's hearing the twins talking to them and talking to him and all this stuff. And she's like, is this even real? Yeah, that's a great point. And she goes up to him and it's like, you see her. She's like, I think she just wants this closure, this clarity. And she asks. S- she asks him. She's right? sitting there like, talk to me, talk to me. And it's like in her mind, she knows it's a goat. It's not going to talk to her. Yeah. So when he actually says something to her, I think she's just at the point where it's like, I have nothing else. <laughs> like this happened. Mm-hmm. And then he offers her what is it? Deliciousness what, or de- live uh, what, deliciously. What thou like butter. <laughs> yeah. All this, all these things that she wants. <laughs> and she's like, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, let's do it. Yeah. Fuck yeah. I want uh, butter. <laughs> but yeah, she goes to him for that clarity and everything. And it, it gets confirmed. Like mm-hmm. at the end of the movie, it gets confirmed. So like, I don't think she was out to do anything in the beginning. You know, you question it. And you're just like, is she actually a witch? She doesn't mm-hmm. actually become a witch until the end. Yeah, yeah. And for like for an ending of a horror movie, that moment of Thomason's literal ascension, <laughs> um, I think was super symbolic. I also find it incredibly symbolic that that Black Phillip says, like, you have to like take off your sheath yet she had to be naked mm-hmm. um and the reason why is because i almost see that as the symbol of like letting go of your colonial culture like that was her last piece of kind of the remnants of her culture of being a puritan and being a part of that colony and all of those things where like you now have to go strictly back to nature and I think it ties into what we talked about in the beginning with with like English Puritans fear of of the woods, the wolf and the devil and seeing the indigenous as close to that. And like the very beginning of the film, as they're leaving that town, it's two indigenous men who look back on them. There's remarks of someone they know being tormented by, quote unquote, Indian magic. Um, I think in some ways, and like for anyone who's a history nerd, you might have looked into um, captivity narratives of like white European women being held, quote unquote, held captive by indigenous people. And I think instead that's viewed as liberation, right? Thomason is the happiest she's ever been at the end of this movie. Yeah. Floating up into the trees. Hell yeah. In the trees, the woods. Um, there actually is some more like imagery I definitely want to talk about. Um, I just have like some notes and everything here. Something that I kept noticing in the movie was that hair. It wasn't a rabbit. It Mm. was a hair that kept showing up literally before something bad would happen. So I looked it up and everything because I had heard stuff before, but I wasn't sure. Um, You know, rabbits generally, they're the sign of, you know, good things coming, fertility, happiness. This hair keeps showing up, you know, 
on the property or in the woods and you see their property as there there's dead crops you know things are dry mm. there's you know no sustenance to anything if you look at the i noticed like the garden beds everything's just withered mm -hmm. um there's like a gray tinge to everything and this freaking hair keeps showing up and at one point the hair even shows up next to black philip yeah um, so i guess in some folklore hairs are actually witches in a hidden form in order to gain entrance into a field Ooh. so they hide themselves to gain entrance um and part of that is for them to be witch livestock yes so i thought that was kind of interesting because they show a scene where uh caleb's in the woods i think they're like trying to hunt for something mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the hair and shows, father. yeah, the hair shows and then bad things start to happen. Mm -hmm. um, but it was just that scene where I think she opens like where the goats are yeah. and it's Black Phillip and the hair is just sitting right next to him. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, yeah. But then there's another thing too, where they say if a hair crosses your path three times, then danger is on the road before you. Ooh. So I recall the hair being there twice. I don't know. I wouldn't doubt that there was a third time. And this was after I watched the movie. Had I known, I would have definitely sat there trying to count. Because I know they saw him out in the woods, Caleb and his dad. And then they saw him with Black Phillip. So b between those two, right? So there is three times. That That's actually, that's phenomenal. Um, because when Caleb is out in the woods with Thomason... When he's gonna like save the family and and they like they run away the, in the middle of the night. See him again. The okay. reason why Caleb runs off and the reason why the horse bucks Thomason off of her is because of the hair. The yeah. hair shows up. So we so got the witching livestock too. So yeah. he probably made that horse do that. Yeah. Huh. Crazy stuff. Freaking Crazy hairs. Freaking hairs. Um and then also another thing that was pretty prominent to me was when Caleb is upstairs and his mom's trying to treat him and he's bewitched and you know he's saying his things and he starts to choke and then you see him spit out an apple mm -hmm. now he had talked about how like when the whole silver cup situation he was just like oh I thought I saw an apple tree mm -hmm. da, da, da. so some people would think it's because he saw the apple tree that's the apple that he initially like wanted or something like that I mm. see it differently because there is a bite out of that apple and I just <laughs> see it you know considering their religious background yeah. and everything that's the apple from like the Adam and Eve story yeah. like which caused you know, people to live the way that they live now, live in sin and everything like that. So mm -hmm. I think that was just another jab, jab mm -hmm. to their uh, <laughs> religiousness that either that witch mm -hmm. was putting upon them or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so much of the symbolism of witchcraft, and I'm sure one day we're going to do an episode on witchcraft, not so much as like, witchcraft and horror as it is like witchcraft as an actual you know spiritual system of beliefs um but so much of like the iconography of witchcraft is you know inverting christian iconography and so when you think about it as like you know adam 
is the father of us all and then Cain and Abel and all of that. And instead you prioritize Eve or even in, you know, some narratives where you really prioritize Lilith. Um, and I think the narrative of Lilith is making a big comeback. So yeah, I think I could definitely see that inversion of the apple. I also felt like that could have been a crab apple and almost like the sourness. And I know not off the top of my head, but I know there's a lot of symbolism around crab apples as well as being unlucky. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then just another scene that stuck out to me that I wasn't quite sure how to take it. And you might know, know more about it. Mm -hmm. Um, was when, you know, the mother was just thinking that Sam and Caleb were back mm. and she started to breastfeed Sam. Yeah. And it pans out and it's just a crow, yeah. just attack or a raven, I don't know, just mm -hmm. like attacking at her breast. But she's just in bliss mm -hmm. because like love is just blind to her. Like she mm -hmm. thinks she's providing or hallucinating that she's providing for yeah. her child or bewitched at this or point. bewitched at this point. Yeah. Especially because crows have that, you know, interlocking with witches and everything like that. But I didn't yeah. know if you had something. So, I mean, that. my thought on that is that is just fucked up. Her nipples <laughs> bleeding and everything. I mean, the imagery is, I is cringed. Stunning. I was like, ah, no. <laughs> Ow. Ow. <laughs> um, but my thought on that is really about like, the way that Christianity in its own, like Christianity is a colonial religion. You know, it does its best to take over places. And when it takes over people in places, it chooses what to um, kind of take in and make its own. And it chooses what to demonize. And so like, there's a long history of, especially in Catholicism, um, local indigenous gods and spirits becoming saints, right? Um, but the flip side of that is some of the symbols of indigenous beliefs and pagan beliefs, instead of becoming saints and getting like amalgamated into the belief system, instead become demonized. And so I think with crows and ravens, that's a big part of what happens. Crows and ravens are so important to so many like indigenous pagan belief systems in Europe, right? Whether you're talking about, we actually we were just talking about this the other day, whether you're talking about the Morgan, whether you're talking about, you know, Odin, any one of these kind of like psychopomps are super tied to crows and ravens. And so as Christianity's taking over, they're trying to make people see what were the symbols of the old gods instead as symbols of witchcraft. And so, yeah. of course, witches familiars could be cats and rats and hares and all of these things and could also be the crow and the raven. Um, that's my yes. best guess at what that symbolism was there. Yeah. Anything else on the witch? No, those are some of the points that, you know, I had. Yeah. Again, I just think like you couldn't set that movie anywhere else and make it work. Yeah, New no. England as a character. The, the, the like, you can't set that in Florida. Oh, like, I mean, that would, that's packs. a different kind of horror. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So the other movie uh, that we picked as kind of like a quintessential <laughs> New England horror movie or, or a movie that aspects of New England culture make it work is it chapter one. I love this movie so much. 
It's great. Yeah. Do you want to summarize it? Um, yeah, sure. So the summary that I put down is it's a group of kids, you know, it, and they decide that it is their job to end a horrible curse on their hometown of Derry, Maine, where a horrible clown named Pennywise appears every 27 years to prey on the town folk, mostly aiming towards children who are easier to persuade to get close to him. Each character has their strength and weaknesses, which Pennywise uses against them. But ultimately, uh, you know, they push through to try and rid him from the people and town that they love. Yeah. Derry, Maine. <laughs> uh, I think much like the woods in The Witch is its own character, Derry, Maine is its own character in this movie, too. Yeah. It's definitely this small town. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of mom and pop shops that everybody goes to and relies on. So it's just if something's hap if something happens to your family or in general, everybody's going to hear about it. Yeah. You know, it's not something that's going to fly under the radar there. Everyone's going to hear about it, but that doesn't necessarily mean anyone is going to do anything about it. No. And that's, I think, the first thing that I wanted to talk about was, you know, um, I wrote it down as malicious versus nihilistic indifference for the adults. Um, I think anyone who went to go watch this movie in theaters before any spoilers came out, you were, if you're a horror fan at least, you were quite satisfied in those first 10 minutes. That scene of Georgie in the sewer. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and then before Georgie's arm is, is chewed off, we Straight see off. this older, I wouldn't say elderly, but older woman yeah. in a house nearby. Probably in like her late 40s, early 50s. Yeah. On her she's, porch mm -hmm. with her cat. It's mm -hmm. raining out. And she sees Georgie and she sees that he's like talking into the sewer. Mm -hmm. And then the camera pans back on Georgie and we have a little interaction, you know. Hiya, Georgie. Um, and then the water runs red with Georgie's blood. She hears a scream. She, she hears definitely scream. hears him scream because mm -hmm. she looks out again. And then she closes her like porch blinds mm -hmm. and goes back inside. As if nothing happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is such a, like, a common thread throughout this movie. Um, and whereas the witch I tied to the woods, I actually tie it, especially chapter one, to, if not the ocean, nautical culture in some way and, and things that that's tied to. So, like, what's Georgie chasing? He's chasing a sailboat. Or his little, like, made-up sailboat, you know? Um, See, but, like, I also do think, like, that whole older woman and everything, that's definitely an aesthetic of small-town stuff. Mm -hmm. Especially older people with kids. They don't want to bother mm -hmm. unless, like, the kids are doing something to them where they can complain to their parents or something like that. It's just... There's a lot of gossip, but then there's also a lot of if something happens, I don't feel like being involved. I just don't have to say anything. Um, but also, too, it's just like this is also, you know, Pennywise, I feel like has 
his tie on this town. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, is he doing this yeah. to the adults? Yeah. Like, That's my question. Is he he's making them look the other way while he's doing horrible things? Is it malicious? Is it like the adults are terrible people? And and like, yeah, the adults in the car who see Ben getting bullied and, and like scarred up are terrible people. Yeah. Um, but we also get the hint that they're being terrible people because of Pennywise, right? Because the yeah, little Yeah, because you see the balloon pop up yeah. afterwards. But I almost think that there are other adults who are just so nihilistic and that happens to a lot of cultures that are near the ocean where it's just like yeah bad things happen it is what it is suck it up because um georgie's dad georgie's dad totally gives up on looking for georgie i don't know if that's pennywise or if that's just his parents i would hope that it was pennywise giving up I would hope it's Pennywise because if I have no closure to my kid being missing, I'm going to keep looking for my kid. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, I think he definitely has his grip on the adults in this town because there's multiple times, even with, what is it, Bev? Her dad doesn't see the blood in the bathroom mm-hmm. that is spewed everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said with the car, um, mm-hmm. those people see him getting beat up and everything and they just drive on by and the kids keep trying to talk to their parents about things like this and they they already know their parents aren't going to give a rat's ass they're not going to listen to them and that is symbolism because sometimes kids aren't listened to they are just brushed aside yeah Yeah. but then it's also i I think he has his hand in it as well Mm -hmm. what do you think about the rules of pennywise Because I know we had this conversation around, like, if Georgie hadn't reached into the sewer, could Pennywise have attacked him? The rules of Pennywise seem a little bit amorphous to me. So I I think he definitely... I don't think he can attack unless somebody is enticed and is engaging with him. But then also, too, I was thinking, I don't think he can attack if he's away from, like his bases like so his bases are the the sewer system water water like the water uh in the what is it the gorge um quarry the quarry the well Mm -hmm. um that house like all those things is where he's comfortable it's where he attacks it's where he goes after the kids it's where he can manipulate them and scare them and feed on their fear yeah i think if they were just like at a grocery store I don't think he can attack them, but then it's weird and I don't really want to bring it up, but like in the second movie, he does do those things. Yeah. So I, I like, I'm a bit confused on the rules of Pennywise because even in this first one, um, like he can torment you with these fears away from water because with Mike, with the character of Mike, um, he, in that alleyway, near the uh, the butcher shop or, or the meat shop that he's making the delivery to, where he makes Mike see like people being burned, and then you see Pennywise kind of hanging there in the cooler. I don't know that there's anything nearby that that gives Pennywise like the ability. I do think water is, is closely connected. But the rules are uh, the rules are a little bit gray, and and yeah. that's okay. You know, I think that's okay. I don't think 
we, I, I mean, at least for me personally, I don't always need the rules to be uh, concrete. You know, I fucking love Hellraiser and the rules of Hellraiser. <laughs> just one of the totally things. Asinine. One of the things I do really like, and you see it, and I love Tim Curry. Tim mm-hmm. Curry is the friggin' shit. Um, and I do appreciate the original movies, but one of the things that I just, I fell in love with, with these newer, you know, recreations of them is you can see Pennywise not getting excited, but knowing that he's winning. So especially with like Georgie and, you know, the sewer scene and the boat scene, you can see as he's like convincing Georgie to get closer to him he starts to drool more mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like Ugh. you see <laughs> I, Kevin hates it, but I'm Bill just like, and it gives me chills, but it's so good. You see his eyes, you know, start to go askew. You see mm-hmm. his, he's not as peppy cause you see him literally starting to focus in on his prey. Yeah. And then once he knows that they lock him in, uh, that they're locked in, is when he does that transformation from, you know, cute jingly clown to... (laughs) Cute's arguable. Well, yeah, but (laughs) friendlier clown, I guess, to what the hell did I get myself into? And you see that change in Georgie's face the second that he grabs them. He's he's like, damn. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, so one of the things that that I have that I wanted to talk about was Pennywise is amoral, right? Like Pennywise doesn't care if you're a good person or a bad person. He just cares if you're afraid. But the movie has a bit of a weird, like, up and down to it. You start the movie with, like, innocent Georgie, literally innocence incarnate, um, getting his arm ripped off. I can't look at that kid the same way after he, like, uses him as a puppet. I'm like, he's evil. (laughs) But But then the rest of the movie, up until the very end... Up until the last act, Pennywise spends his time essentially killing people who one could argue deserved it. It's Patrick and the other bullies who who disappear throughout most of the middle of the film. And it's not until the last act that Pennywise starts to go after Bev um, and, and takes her that he goes after someone else that we see as like, quote unquote, innocent. Well, I'm sure he's working on anybody in the town Mm -hmm. because you even hear when all the kids get together, they're just like, I keep having these bad dreams. And then they're like, dreams of what? Because I'm having bad dreams too. So we only see it centralized in this group of friends, but it could also be happening with everybody in the town. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I and, he and keeps I think, his options open. <laughs> yeah, I think this is less of a question of like how does Pennywise operate? And more of a question of like the director and the writer's choice, like the director and the writer's choice to spend like the bulk of the middle of the movie having Pennywise be someone who goes after people who were kind of glad he goes after, um, because you do. No one sympathizes with Pennywise, right? But there are moments where you're like, I am invested in these characters, but also this clown. I want to know more. And if Pennywise was just pure, like, chaotic evil, I don't think we would want to know as much as we want to know about Pennywise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I will also say that Ben is flipping adorable. Um, I want that documented. Oh, that little child cheeks. <laughs> um, um, but also, there is an element of this movie which is so New England because what you really have is a town that is haunted. Right? Derry, Maine is haunted. It's haunted by its past. And they all know about it. That's yeah. what's weird. It's like they all know that every 27 years shit's about to go down. Yeah. But then yet again, it's like, is he just kind of moving it from their mind? Um, you know, why aren't people in an uproar? Why aren't they trying to find this? Why is it this group of young kids that's going to do it? <laughs> like, But that's... That's, I think, what I mean by being so very New England, right? Mm. We know how actually horrible the history of this region is, right? Like, we know that we're on stolen land. We know the, the massacres and the genocides and all of that. But it's only every so often, and we're recording this now in a moment where, like, we're coming to a point of reckoning with some of this history, with the Black Lives Matter movement, with the fact that finally some of these statues of Columbus are being torn down. But just like some of the adults in in the movie, the elder generation would much rather turn its head. Yeah. You know, I think that's a very American, but it's also a very New England thing to just be like, oh, yeah, terrible things have happened here. <laughs> <laughs> it takes the younger generation to make a change. And mm -hmm. to make difference because mm -hmm. they don't want it to keep happening. Just like now, we don't want all this horrible shit to keep happening. Mm -hmm. So we have to change it. Mm -hmm. Our damn selves. Yeah, literally, quite literally. We need to put a iron rod through systematic racism. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things that uh, for me... One of the one of the things that sticks out is this idea of the losers club. Um, and I think first that's like so stereotypically 80s um, kind of breakfast clubby type thing. They did a good 80s feel in this movie. I loved it. They did. They did. Right. With like the the Gremlins poster and some of those other things. Wait, where was the Gremlins poster? Um, in Bill's room. Bill has a Gremlins poster in his room. Oh, yeah. I was too busy staring at the posters in uh, Ben's room. Yes, the new, new kids, kids on the on block, the block posters. <laughs> Amongst um, all his little history posters. Yeah, I was Ben when I was a child. Minus the new kids on the block, I was Ben. Um, but this idea of winners versus losers and how how kind of central that is to American culture and thankfully, it's starting to fall apart. But just the idea that, like, the losers make the difference, I think, is wonderful. Um, one of my favorite characters, and we talked about this as we were watching the movie this time around, but it's Richie. Richie you know? is the comedic relief. <laughs> yeah, it's Richie. But it's also, like, you want to be Richie, but you also know where I'll stand. Like... 
we're all actually going to be Stan, who's just terrified of everything. But I literally think I'm a mixture of like Stan and Eddie. Like, I just, I don't want to touch shit. I'm scared of shit. Why can't things just be like, well, guys, why can't we just go play? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But like, how many people do we all know, especially, I'd imagine it's everywhere, but I think especially here in this region, who struggle with like difficult lives and the way that they cope with that struggle is just through obnoxious humor. Oh, yeah. And we all need a Richie, (laughs) even if sometimes they don't help. Um, we all need a Richie somewhere in our lives. But he did always help, though, which is good. Like, I never yeah. saw, out of all, the entire group, um, Pennywise definitely feeds off of, you know, a certain fear factor from each one. Richie, I noticed in the movie, the thing he was afraid of was being the next one to go missing. Um mm-hmm. So I feel like he definitely was one of the stronger ones in the group when it mm-hmm. came to, like, bases of, like, fear to feed off of, I guess. Yeah. Um, which is kind of why he could provide so much comedic relief. He didn't have, like, they didn't show his family or anything like that in the background really causing, like, problems. Yeah, for we him. actually don't think we, we meet Richie's family at all. No, no. And it's not until the second movie that you know more about his background. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in this movie, they they really didn't touch on it. Yeah. They touched on everybody else's. Yeah. But not him. Yeah. And being lost sucks way more than being dead in terms of like a fate to choose. In terms of also thinking about the people left behind. Like death has a sort of. Yeah. He doesn't want to be lost. to it. And then just forgotten. Like yeah. nobody look like they just stop looking for him. Schrodinger's Richie. <laughs> He's but both dead and alive at the oh same God. time. <laughs> um, cool. Do you want to touch on Bev's dad at all, or do you want to just leave that scumbag where he is? I just want to leave that scumbag where okay. he is. Cool. It's it's unfortunate, and it's just yeah, it's cringy. such it it's such and, a gut punch. And they did it so well, but it just irks you yeah it just makes your stomach turn and you just want to kill him yourself yeah like you just want to take the porcelain from the toilet and knock him on the head yeah i was very satisfied when he died yeah and i was very satisfied that bev did it mm-hmm mm-hmm there's a there's a lot to be said about bev in in the sense that like kind of what you were just saying about richie i think bev is absolutely the strongest character She's the most consistently strong character also. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to talk about with it? Um, Chapter one? I just love this movie. If you haven't seen it because you're like, oh, Tim Curry's will always be the best. Yes, it is amazing. Mm -hmm. But I just look at them as two separate entities. Like, they're both awesome. They're both great. They were both great for their time. And... It's just a movie I love to put on all the time, even if it's just on in the background. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think it's great. And the second one is great as well. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's definitely it's much more fast paced. If the yeah. witch in the way we described it is something to you that it's just like not a thing that's up your alley. Yeah. Definitely make sure that if you've watched it, try rewatching it. Chapter one again, a bit with this lens of like how New England as a character can portray certain elements of horror. Yeah. And I know a lot of people didn't like it because they kept saying it it wasn't scary. It was funny. Mm -hmm. And it's just like because it was a story like it had a good story to it. It had elements of fear, 
but a, a horror story doesn't have to be freaking horror the entire time. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I actually don't like that when it's all blood, guts, gore, and just horrible shit. I personally don't enjoy it. Yeah, I think with anything, you need some brevity. Need some almost balance. just as a change of pace. Yeah. You know, even with the witch, like there are moments in the witch, for example, when Thomason is like telling the twins that she's the witch and she's going to eat them alive, that you're like, Heh, suck it, twins. <laughs> Fuck those twins. Um, you need that bit of brevity. Cool. So that is our first official episode on an actual topic that we've got to cover in depth. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, I hope the banter back and forth was worthwhile and worth your time to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, what we would love, and so we're going to get to work on the next episode, but what we would absolutely love is if on social media, on whatever platform you choose, reach out to us, A, and tell us what you thought about the episode, argue with us about some of the things that we talked about. Uh, if you have more to add to some of the research and background, that would be phenomenal. But we'd also love to hear if there's any specific topics that y'all want us to look into, address, topic, talk about, uh, find someone to interview on, anything like that. I would be super interested, too, if, you know, wherever you're from, what are some you know, like local stories that you guys grew up with? What are some places that, you know, you went and checked out and wasn't necessarily what you thought? Some lore that, you know, is part of your community. I think it'd be mm -hmm. pretty cool to listen to that stuff because sometimes you can Google it and it, it's, it is what it is, but the people yeah. who actually live there and like know stuff about it can kind of debunk some things. So yeah. I think that'd be pretty cool to hear from people. Absolutely. Please, please, please send that our way. Um, and if you've stopped at any of these kind of like folklore markers, share some pictures, tag us on social media, uh, anything like that. Again, our interest in creating this podcast is really creating a community. Also, too, if you're not, I assume as of right now, you know, we're just starting out with this. So I'm most of our people who are listening to this are probably from New England. Mm -hmm. But if it reaches anybody who's not from New England, what is some things you guys, you know, hear, you about? hear about us? Yeah. yeah like What's the what tea? are some stories? What's the <laughs> tea? Like, what do you imagine if you come here, what you're going to see? You know, I, th mm -hmm. I think that's always cool. Yeah, for sure. All right. Until next time, uh, this is Kevin and Desiree, and we're going to close the lids. Thanks for listening to Two Coffins. Bye, guys.